Good evening, everyone. Thank you, David. Can I just, uh, haven't really made much of this on Sunday evenings, but a few people have been asking me about it. It's just a little book that we've been making available to people called Before You Open Your Bible, and it's Nine Heart Postures for Approaching God's Word. Uh, so if anybody's interested in those, they're just a pound each, but it's all about how we approach God's Word, because the way we approach God's Word often determines how we hear and respond to God's Word. So I have just a few of these left, so if anybody wants one, talk to me afterwards. Let me ask you a question, and, and I've asked this question or a, a version of it on a number of occasions before, so I kind of need you to, to respond to this. But how, how many of you know someone who appeared to begin the Christian life with such promise and such potential, but has since turned their back on their faith or fallen away? How many people know of someone like that? Okay, that's a huge amount of people. Here are some kind of follow-up and related questions. If, if, the, if you stuck your hand up, if the answer is yes, here are some related questions. And these are, these are not comfortable questions. Here's the first one. Does this mean, does this mean, if you answered yes, does this mean those people were never truly saved? Second question, is apostasy, is the rejection of Christianity by someone who formerly was a Christian, is that a genuine danger? Can a Christian actually abandon their faith and jeopardize their salvation? And then third thing, are these the kind of people Exactly like a couple of those types of soil that Jesus spoke about in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. People who hear the message of the kingdom, who hear the gospel, who respond positively, who grow, but then something cuts them adrift. Something stymies their growth and causes them to fall away. Is that, is that the type of people you have in mind? Please do turn with me to, to Hebrews 5. Whereas we continue from where we left off two weeks ago, which was at the end of verse 10. But as we go here tonight, we're going to confront some of what I've just been kind of raising. Although I'm going to have to issue a warning, which I'll do in a moment. But I need to also say that I'm not necessarily going to answer all those questions that I've just raised, which is not unlike me. But at the beginning of chapter 5, and for those who were here a couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of chapter 5, the, the writer of Hebrews has been urging his readers to do this. Consider Jesus. This is a term we have come across in this epistle and it's the writer's desire that his readers would consider Jesus. One of his main aims right throughout this letter is to elevate Jesus. It's to show that Jesus is greater than a number of things or a number of people. And so Jesus, we've discovered, is greater than the angels. That's what he says. Jesus is greater than Moses. Later on in this epistle, he's going to say Jesus is greater than the law. 
And at the beginning of chapter 5, he's making the point that Jesus is a greater high priest. He is our high priest, greater than any of the high priests of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He is, in fact, this is his words, he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that kind of mysterious king and priest who blessed Abram in Genesis 14. So Jesus is greater. And the writer is going to return to this particular subject. And he's also going to return to that mysterious character, Melchizedek. But if you look at verse 11, it's as if the writer presses the pause button and digresses. Because look at how verse 11 begins. He says this, we have much to say about this. Okay? So, so he want, he's saying, I need to tell you lots more about this whole idea that Jesus being greater, Jesus being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I have lots more to tell you. But it is hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. It seems the writer wants to go deeper. He, he wants to take this further, but he doesn't think his readers are going to be able to cope with it mainly because he doesn't think they're up for it. He doesn't think they're prepared to engage with it and get their heads around this stuff. He says, listen, you no longer try to understand. And we'll see why in a moment. Now remember, this writer carries a nagging fear. A fear that has partly motivated him to write this entire epistle. And that is the fear that his readers are in danger of falling away. They're in danger of packing it in, walking away from their newfound faith and returning to full-on Judaism. This is one of the reasons he writes this letter. And we've been saying this time and time again. And so if you do, and David has drawn attention to this, if you do have a copy of the NIV, you'll see that the title that's given for this little section that runs from verse 11 of chapter 5 through to verse 12 of chapter 6, the title is Warning Against falling away. So this is a fear he carries. He's afraid his readers might backtrack. I'm not saying backslide, I'm saying backtrack. So let's read the text together and then I'm going to issue that warning that I mentioned a moment ago. So let's stand for the public reading. of It's page 1204 starting at verse 11 of chapter 5. We have much to say about this, the whole idea of Melchizedek, etc. But it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by, the time, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you actually need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible 
for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, it's impossible for those if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Wow. Here's the warning, or rather, here's what different people have said about this text, and specifically verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6, that explains why I need to tread very carefully tonight. So here's what some people have said. This is the naughtiest problem passage in Hebrews, if not the whole Bible. A passage which has been the battleground of varying convictions for ages. It is probably true to say that these warnings here have caused more unnecessary anxiety to believers than almost any other verses in the New Testament. Throughout the history of the church, Hebrews 6, 1-8 has been one of the most difficult passages to interpret this is undoubtedly one of the most controversial and frequently debated passages in all of Scripture. There are probably a dozen or more interpretive options of this passage that may be found in the commentaries and journal literature. So this is going to be interesting tonight, okay? This is going to be interesting. And so I am fully aware, and I, I've got to try to be true to God's word. That's what you would expect of me. That's what I hope you hope of me and pray for me. But I am aware that there are all kinds of takes on these verses. For example, some think, do you know, they only relate to a particular problem at this time. Therefore, they, they really only apply directly to a first century Jewish Christian context. That's one possibility. Others think these verses are kind of hypothetical. 
In other words, and this is, this is a popular opinion, they're kind of meant to put forward an imaginary situation. So, for example, the, the danger of apostasy, and some of, your, some of your translations will include this word, and we will look at that a bit later. The danger of apostasy, this idea of falling away, of abandoning your faith, it isn't real. The writer is just getting us to imagine, well, what if? That's another possibility. Or there's others who believe that these verses present a genuine warning of a real risk that needs to be acknowledged, that needs to be taken seriously, and that needs to be faced up to. So what do I think? Kind of all of the above. I'll explain why. And by the way, if, if you were here last Sunday night as part of our Controversial Jesus series, I hope you're going to sense a connection. Because last week we listened to Jesus who said this, that not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And we identified that it is, it is by their fruit, it is by the fruit of people's lives, the fruit of obedience, that genuine Christians, genuine kingdom of God dwellers are known by Jesus. And so there is going to be some overlap with last week and this. And so with all of that said by way of introduction and kind of disclaimers, let's jump into this actual text. And let's attempt, unlike the first readers or receivers of this letter, let us attempt to try to understand. This was their problem. They just weren't willing to try to understand. Let us try to understand. Now, as I've said, the writer's concerned that his readers are at risk of falling away. That, that, that's, that's, what's, that's a fear he's got. And he appears in this text and in this section of his letter to highlight three problems that are kind of contributing to or causing this risk to intensify. Here are three problems that need to be addressed. And I'm, try I'm trying to make this as kind of manageable as possible. And so here's the first problem, and that is the problem of ignorance. He says, do you know something? Th these people are milk drinkers, and they need to move on. Otherwise, they're never going to grow up. He says, listen, they no longer try to understand. Now, some of you, if you depending on your translation, if you've got a, an authorized version or an ESV or an RSV, we'll, you will see it says, you have become dull of hearing. In other words, you've got lazy about growth. You're kind of suffering from a bad case of arrested development. You've come so far, but you've stopped. He actually says, do you know something? You should be teaching others now. Look at verse 12. But you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You see, these people appear to be Christians who have kind of abandoned or become apathetic about getting into God's word. And so they have, have reached a kind of, well, take it or leave it position. When it comes to scripture, they've become indifferent. When it comes to reading and studying and reflecting and meditating on God's word. And as a result, they, they can't teach anyone else. They can't pass it on. They can't disciple. They're not discipling anybody else. 
You haven't moved on. You're kind of still at square one. Not willing to engage head and heart on any kind of regular basis. And so in addition to not being able to instruct others, you also struggle to distinguish good from evil and right from wrong. Great one. End of verse 14. It says, listen, you're milk drinkers and it's never going to sustain you. And so you're in danger of falling away or settling for less. And here's what Raymond Brown writes in his commentary on this point. He says, many people casually drift into a low standard of Christian life because they minimize the importance of Christian instruction and disciplined Bible study. Somehow or other, however busy he or she may be, every Christian needs to find a regular opportunity for serious study of the Bible. And I suppose that's why we as a church maintain the priority of this part of our weekly gatherings, the sermon. It's why we give so much time to it. It's why we encourage people to join small groups in in order to study God's word with others. It's why we stress the need for daily, regular, personal devotions, the practice of holy habits of which Bible reading and study and meditation is a main one. Do not be ignorant of God's word. The problem of ignorance, the result of it, you may fall away. Following on from this comes the problem of immaturity, and it's connected, obviously, it flows. Look at the first verse of chapter 6. Therefore, so connected, still flow. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And so what he's saying is, listen, it's time to take on board some solid food. You've had the milk. You've got established in the elementary stuff, but it's time to bulk up. You need to mature. Now, he's not suggesting that they ditch the elementary teaching. That foundational, fundamental teaching is essential. But look at the second half of verse 2. You don't need to keep laying that foundation over and over again. Keep it in place, but start building on it. Why? Because that is a sign that you're maturing. And just in case they don't know what those elementary teachings are, he identifies them for us. Here are six basic Christian doctrines. Important doctrines, absolutely. You must never leave these, forget these, neglect these, deny these. But this is Christianity 101. This is the ABCs. And they're all in verses 1 and 2. And so here we go. Here's the ABCs of Christianity. One, repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works, depending on your translation, how it's phrased. And the point is this. Repentance is core Christian teaching. It's essential. And and the moment you abandon the call of Scripture and the call of Jesus to repent is the moment that the foundations of your faith start to shake. And this whole idea of repentance from dead works is a reminder that trying to work for your salvation, 
trying to work for your salvation. And for, for the people in this context, there was this sense of returning back to full-on Judaism and the works of the law. But this idea of trying to work for your salvation, that's a nonsense. And if you ever think you can do that, you need to repent. Repentance from dead work. Repentance is a core Christian doctrine. Secondly, he says, this is keeping on, faith in God. Now, later on in this epistle, he's going to say a phrase that we're all aware of. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Salvation is by faith alone. And so we repent from sin and from dead works. But we then put our trust in, we place our faith in God and the work of Christ. So faith in God, foundational. Thirdly, and again, depending on your translation, instructions about washing or cleansing rites, or in some, most translations, instructions about baptisms, plural. And this is possibly a reference between kind of, or bringing attention to the difference between John's baptism, because remember he said, I baptize you with water, and the difference with that in Christ's baptism, where he said, there's one who's coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So ultimately, what this is referring to, you could say, is discipleship. This idea of the public declaration of belonging to God and pursuing a new life in Christ. It's foundational teaching of the Christian faith. Pursuing new life in Christ. Discipleship. Number four, the laying on of hands. Now, exactly what the writer's referring to here is a little less obvious. In New Testament terms, that could be a reference to receiving the gift or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or it could be this idea of being commissioned where hands were laid on people so they were commissioned for service. But either way, whether it's to do with the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, or being commissioned for service. Again, fundamental Christian teaching. Number five, the resurrection of the dead. Death is not the end. Christianity fundamentally believes and teaches there's life beyond the grave. We will live again in a new heaven and a new earth. And that is our hope. And then number six, eternal judgment. And this writer later on will say, it is appointed unto man and woman once to die and then to face judgment. One day Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. He will judge the nations and all unrighteousness. Fundamental, elementary Christian teaching. Vitally important, but basic knowledge as far as this author is concerned. He says you need to build on that. You need to go deeper. Otherwise, you're going to drift. You're going to fall away, maybe. And so here's a question. Could you summarize or articulate these elementary teachings of Christianity? Repentance, faith in God, discipleship and the pursuit of a new life in Christ, what it means to receive the Holy Spirit and serve, the hope of resurrection, and final judgment. Because that's the kind of ABCs. And we need to mature. Know this stuff. Believe this. You've got to go deeper. So the problem of ignorance. If you remain a milk drinker, you may 
lose your way. The problem of immaturity, if you only keep rehearsing the elementary teaching of Christianity, you won't mature fully, and therefore you may drift. And then we come to the third problem, the problem of apostasy. And, and this is where it gets tricky, and people get very nervy. I want to read verses 4 to 8 again, this time from the RSV, okay? I, I don't know how many people use the RSV or the ESV. But let me read it from there. I'm going to show it on the screen. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy. Since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, they receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. So, so it seems you can commit apostasy as a Christian. You can fall away. And in referring to this kind of danger and this problem, the writer describes those who are at risk from this. And he starts in verses 4 and 5 by saying, they had once been enlightened. So these are people who have seen the light. They had tasted the heavenly gift, he writes. Oh, what is the heavenly gift? What is the ultimate heavenly gift for God so loved the world that he gave? And Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. They have tasted of Jesus. These are people who have received Jesus. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. These are people who have received that incredible, divine, empowering gift. They had also tasted of the goodness of the word of God. God's word had nourished these people. And they have tasted of the powers of the age to come. And so something of God's kingdom power, eternal kingdom power, has impacted their lives. But despite all of this, they can fall away. Having received so much from God, they can effectively throw it all back in God's face. And if they do, and if they remain in that state, if they maintain that stance, if they turn away from all of this, then, just reading the text, it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. See, if you're not willing to repent and come home, it's impossible to force you back. You know, and as he highlights this problem further, he kind of spells out the sheer horror of this. Because by falling away and by committing apostasy, he 
says, and by now choosing to reject Jesus, you're re-crucifying him all over again. And not only that, you're actually treating his death with contempt. You know, Isaiah prophesied regarding the initial death of Jesus that he was despised and he was rejected by men. But whenever someone falls away, whenever someone commits apostasy, they are, in a sense, despising and rejecting him all over again. And when you do that, what he's saying here, and you keep doing that, if you maintain your, if you refuse to kneel again at the cross, then it's impossible to restore you to repentance. If that is your stance, if that is your decision, if that's what you've chosen. Now, as the writer ends this, what is an arresting section of scripture? He, he concludes with a picture, or it's a parable maybe from agricultural life, and so he refers to land that receives rainfall, but it produces one of two things. Either it brings forth vegetation, or it brings forth worthless thorns and thistles. And this is what takes us back to last week, where by their fruit you will know them. You see, the problem of apostasy, the problem of falling away from God, is that your life will not then produce vegetation. It will not then produce good fruit. It will only produce thorns and thistles, bad fruit and dross, and therefore ultimately end, end of verse 8, when the fire of judgment burns, it's going to be consumed. In the end, end of verse 8, it will be burned. And so the writer here, he cares passionately about his readers. The first recipients of this letter. And he longs for them to grow in their newfound faith in Jesus, who is the greatest, who is superior. But he's anxious. He's afraid. Given their situation, given the persecution they're experiencing, given their temp the temptation they're feeling to revert to full-on Judaism, he's afraid that they may drift and they may fall away. And so in this part of his letter, he kind of presses pause as he's dealing with some really difficult stuff. And he presses pause to warn them of three problems they face. Three problems we all face. The problem of ignorance. Listen, you will not survive on a staple diet of milk. The problem of immaturity. We may not survive if we do not move on from the elementary teaching of our faith. We need to keep expanding and deepening our knowledge and understanding of God and the things of God. Got to keep maturing. And then the problem of apostasy, the problem of falling away. Abandoning your faith is a perilous risk to take and place to be. Don't even think of veering in that direction, he says. Don't go there. Given all that you have experienced. And as the writer ends this kind of temporary digress, he finishes with some Genuine and powerful words of encouragement. Because having raised these potential and very real problems, he then turns around and says in verse 9, and this, this is what often has caused the confusion around this, but he turns around in verse 9 and he says, and if you have a New Living Translation, he says, we really don't believe all this applies to you. Like, sorry? 
Or in the NIV, it says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Now, that, that may seem surprising. Why did he say all that? Well, clearly, he felt he needed to say it for their benefit, and he needed to say it for ours. I need to highlight these problems. I need to make you aware of these things, because these are the things that may cause you to fall away. And then he ends by highlighting some evidence of growth and evidence of fruit in their lives. Look at this again. He points out how what you have done for God and the love that you have shown to God through helping others and how you continue to help others. Do you know something? See that love you have for God and the way you show that love for God by helping others. What does he say? That will not be forgotten. And so he says to them, keep going Keep expressing that level. What does he use the word? Diligence. Keep doing that right to the very end. In other words, endure, persevere. And if you do that as others have done that, and he actually says, I want you to imitate others who have done that. If you do that to the very end, then you will inherit what has been promised to you. If you do it to the very end, just keep loving God. And showing your love for God by helping others. And so I know there are many other issues to consider in this text. And I certainly haven't addressed or unraveled all or many of the knots that are raised by it. But here's, here, here's my main message tonight. And it's kind of simple. It's as simple as I can make it. Here are the four takeaways based on what, what I understand as the writer is saying here, here it is. Transition from milk through regular engagement with God's word. Know what you believe and deepen your understanding of what you believe. Don't abandon your faith in light of what you have. And love God and help others.